from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. This week, we are bringing you an episode from the No Jargon podcast, which is a production of the Scholars Strategy Network. Candace Watt-Smith, who you know from Democracy Works, is the guest on this episode. She talks with No Jargon hosts Lisa Hernandez and Lizzie Getty Ehrlich about her research on racial attitudes among millennials, and particularly uh, her book Racial Stasis, uh, which was published by the University of Chicago Press. Uh, This is the first of two episodes that uh, we're going to do here on the show that really look at generational divides and the role that they play in American democracy. So we'll hear first uh, Candace's uh, research and and perceptions about the role of race across generations. And next week, we'll be talking with Kevin Munger, a professor of political science here at Penn State, who has a new book out uh, all about the baby boomer generation's involvement in politics and what he describes as the boomer ballast. So stay tuned for that next week. But first, here is Candace Watt-Smith on the No Jargon podcast. Hi, I'm Lisa Hernandez. And I'm Lizzie Gedierlich. And we are your hosts for Scholars Strategy Network's No Jargon. Each month, we will discuss an American policy problem with one of the nation's top researchers without jargon. And this month, we are going to examine setbacks for racial attitudes in the United States. Well, I'm a white, older millennial, so my racial attitudes are correct. And I'm the best. Oh, really? We're the least racist most culturally aware people. And it's all boomers, man. That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Well, then you should definitely listen to this conversation. Because am I about to get schooled? Let me tell you, you will get schooled like all the way through. It was really interesting because so many of our conversations as far as generations go is like the next one will be it. That next generation is going to change everything. Things are going to be so much better as far as their attitudes and worldviews. And oh boy, I mean, I guess we forget that past generations are the ones also raising and (laughs) educating the newer generations. So course, things are going to get passed down. Well, I'll tell you one thing that I am aware of in the professor you're about to speak with her research, uh, which is that the way we word questions in polls uh, and the responses we get that drive so much of our public conversations around what people actually think and feel matter a lot and are often not great. And uh, I agree with that, no matter what it says about my cohort. Mm-hmm. And Candace Watts-Smith definitely has a lot of input into how we can try to examine people's attitudes better and get them to answer more honestly. So let's get into our conversation here. For this week's episode, I spoke to Candace Watts-Smith, Associate Professor of Political Science at Duke University. Professor Smith's expertise highlights race and ethnicity's role in shaping the American political landscape. She focuses on individuals' and groups' policy preferences, particularly around social policies that either worsen or minimize disparities and inequality between groups. Here's a conversation. Hi, Professor Smith. Thanks for coming on No Jargon. Thanks for the invitation, Lisa. Of course. So you have been observing and studying what you call a stagnation in racial progress in our country in recent years. And you 
co-wrote a book, Racial Stasis, with another professor at Duke, Christopher DeSante, that takes a deep dive in examining this and establishing that this stagnation is very much real and using your research to explain why it is happening. So as you do in your book, could we um, establish this problem? Like in what ways has racial progress flatlined in recent years? Sure. So I should say that when we talk about racial progress, we can talk about a lot of things. We can talk about inequalities in wealth, health, you know, housing, education, so on and so forth. But this book focuses on attitudes, you know, which is just kind of one part of a larger set of questions around racial inequality. So Chris and I were inspired to write this book in part because we are both millennials and a lot of people had a lot to say, I guess, you know, maybe 10 years ago when we were young. And I'm saying that because, you know, the eldest millennial is like in their 40s, right? They have kids, Mm -hmm. they have a mortgage, they have college debt, so on and so forth. But at the time, people were just saying, you know, millennials, they're going to be so progressive. They're going to do so much work to move the needle. And given that we have have the occupation. And so we have the task of determining whether our assumptions are true. And so we went on this journey to say, look, let's just measure. Let's measure attitudes over time to see if they change. And if they do change, hopefully they're changing in a more progressive direction. That would be ideal. And if they're not, then let's try to figure out why. And that's where we ended up with racial stasis. So the racial stagnation is supposed to I guess there was a time before when there was progress in racial attitudes. Could you give some examples of a time when racial attitudes were actually moving forward? Sure. So this question, Lisa, all of these things are like, everything's more complicated when you look down deep into it. So there used to be questions on surveys like, would you live next to a Black person? Or do you think that Black people are inherently inferior? Or would you allow your child to marry a Black person? And from the 1940s to the 1980s, those attitudes over time became more progressive. But after the civil rights movement, scholars noticed that the way that people were willing to talk about racial issues changed. So asking someone, okay, do you think that Black people are inherently inferior is not, no one's going to say yes because they're not allowed to say yes. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are some people who like just didn't believe that to be true in ways that they did. And so around the 1980s, late 70s, 80s, political scientists started asking a different set of questions that were kind of more subtle, more subtle ways to ask about the extent to which you think that Black people are not doing their part, maybe that's a way to say, to live up to the American dream. And those questions are called the racial resentment scale. And we've actually seen that since those questions have been used since before I was born, there's actually been very little change in people's responses to those questions. Uh, There's a little dip in 2016, which seems probably counterintuitive. But overall, for about 30 or 40 years, that flatlined in a way that didn't really match with people's kind of ongoing narrative about inevitable racial progress. I see. And as for the research that you conducted, how did you determine how you were going to measure racial attitudes within your subject groups? Yeah. So first, we wanted to look at the way that people have been doing that. 
which is through this racial resentment scale. Mm -hmm. And the racial resentment scale asks questions like, the Irish, Italian, and Polish immigrants work their way up without any help, and Black should too. Or um, there's another question like, generations of slavery have made it hard for Black people to improve their status or something like that. So we use those same questions to see like, hey, are millennials answering these questions in the same way? And so we find on some level, no, that if we were going to use that battery of questions, we would see that they were slightly more progressive, like very slightly more progressive. But then we thought to ourselves like, okay, well, I don't know, Lisa, when you hear these questions, I don't know, do they sound weird to you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we figure like, look, people of our generation are not thinking about the, the same question that those questions don't bring to mind the same issues that they might bring to say boomers and what if we ask them a different set of questions then what could we like if we could ask them a question that mimics the way they're thinking and talking about racial matters could we get a better measure of where they are so we just asked people what they thought and we wanted to tap into and map how people were talking about race so we asked about 35 people you know, white millennials, just we just had conversations with them. And by we, I mean, I hired young white women to have conversations with other young, you know, white people. And we looked to see patterns around how they were talking and thinking about race. And then we made an effort to create a new measurement to what we think and hope does a better job of speaking to the kind of multidimensional nature of racial attitudes. Not just do you not like someone, but what's your stance on institutional racism? How do you feel about it? Are you angry? Does it make you upset? Are you even willing to admit that racial issues are structural and not just mere incidents, for example? That's really interesting, especially the part that you mentioned that you had young white women conduct the interviews, which I'm guessing was done purposefully to have folks feel more comfortable to answer honestly. So that's a really interesting way to make sure that you're trying to get the most like accurate vision that they have of like what's going on in the country and how they're feeling about it. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about white millennials specifically. You mentioned that you focused a lot on them. How are their attitudes on racism kind of stagnating a little bit? Because, of course, as you mentioned, we often think that they're going to be moving forward. The next generation is supposed to be more progressive. And it's kind of shocking to hear that it's pretty much right on par with the past generations. So how are they stagnating in a way? So. The thing that we find is that almost for every, let's say, bonus point that mm -hmm. a millennial would get, there would be a minus point. So, mm. for example, there is no millennial that we interviewed that was okay with being called a racist. They didn't want to be seen as a racist. They didn't want to be viewed as a racist. And, you know, that's good, you know? <laughs> at the very basic. But then if we ask them, okay, well, what is racism? Their ideas about what that constitute is actually very narrow. And so what that means is that there are people who are really devoted to having a very kind of upstanding presentation around being, you know, being anti-racist without 
actually knowing what it is that racism is, right? And so one of the things that we see is that people do not want to be called a racist, seen as a racist, or viewed as a racist. But when we ask them how they understand racism, they have a very narrow understanding of that. And so what we find is that even if someone is kind of uh, really, they want to be anti-racist, but how can you be anti-racist if you are unsure of how racism works, for example? Mm. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the kind of stagnations is you want to move forward and not being a racist. The back step is you, you're not able to pinpoint the dynamics of racism in the United States. Right. So it sounds like it's more of um, they recognize racism on a superficial level of things you can't say. But as far as um, knowing like the economic standards that play into racism, et cetera, that part is missing, it seems yeah. like. And so like that's one example. And so we call this kind of like a countervailing force. Another countervailing force is around diversity that, you know, I'm sure if we walked into any room anywhere and asked people if they value diversity, everyone would raise their hand. But then we find that among millennials, they have a tension with diversity. One, they sometimes see, let's say, more air quotes, diverse candidates as being mutually exclusive from being meritorious candidates, for example, or that they want diversity if it means that they can learn. But if it means that the candidate pool is more competitive, then they're like, well, do we really need diversity? These are the kind of tensions that we see with this group that, you know, we have the one step forward love of diversity on the back side is that it doesn't really mean that they want a, a reallocation of power or resources to a more diverse demographic. And then another countervailing tendency I think that we see or another countervailing force is that I, I think that we tend to think that like generations are like aliens that show up on earth with their own ideas. And we forget that people still inherit their ideas from their parents and from their grandparents. So sure, millennials are different in many ways, but when we ask them questions about diversity and, you know, where should we have it and all of these kinds of things, they sometimes kind of step back and and use these kind of tropes that are very common from previous generations. So, you know, we don't see like a wholesale difference from previous generations in the way they talk about things. For example, like affirmative action. And they're like, well, quotas are bad. Well, quotas are illegal. And they've been illegal for as long as any millennial has ever been alive. So that kind of old way of thinking and talking and old racial logics still kind of um, filter through the way that we see white millennials think and talk about race. That's very interesting, especially like when you're talking about, we always have this idea that the next generation is somehow going to be so far removed and different from the one before, because I was just about to ask you, do you think this is going to continue with Gen Z (laughs) and the following generations? And now I'm realizing, yeah, it's probably, we're going to maybe see a lot of the same, but I also want to get your opinion on Um, There's obviously a lot of legislation right now attacking education on the country's Mm -hmm. racist history. How do you think that's going to affect any sort of progress? Yeah. So that's the thing is that, you know, that third countervailing force that I talked about, this kind of the inheritance. You know, the thing about cohort change is that cohort change provides a potential for change, but change is not inevitable. And one of the things that hinders potential progress is that, you know, we should be giving the the next generation tools 
to be Mm -hmm. better than we are. And, you know, I think what you're pointing out, Lisa, this legislation that we're seeing across the country, just kind of sweeping across local school boards, is that we are taking away tools from our, you know, from young people to understand, have a better understanding of the dynamics of structural inequality. And so how can we expect them to be better than us and do better than us if they don't have the history, the analysis, the critical thinking, the skills to assess and dismantle those things. One thing that I'm always hopeful about, but then on the other hand, get maybe a little bit scared about as a millennial Gen Z cusp myself Mm -hmm. is social media, obviously, Mm -hmm. and folks getting Mm -hmm. information from social media. And of course, we saw a lot of protests in the last couple of years, like Black Lives Matter protests and protests in favor of racial justice, as a result of videos being shared on social media. And even just last week, like another fatal shooting of a Black man, like a video of Patrick Leoya was being shared on social media. Do you think that white millennials' perspective changes through actually seeing these videos? Is that something that has actually motivated folks to change their own perspective or work on their own perspective of racial attitudes within the United States, especially within the younger generations? Okay. I think I may be getting on my high horse. I'm getting on my, I'm going to get on my high horse. Yeah. <laughs> so, Okay. I think that we can just look at the data. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer Tutti and Hakeem Jefferson, I think in the Washington Post earlier this year, I think it's hard to know what day it is on any given day in these days, but it was a little while ago that they did an assessment to see, hey, you know, everybody watched a nine minute video in May of 2020. And that sparked a, like the second wave of the Black Lives Matter movement. Did we see those attitudes persist over time? And more or less, the answer is no. That there was a, you know, a peak where people were kind of like, hey, like we should do more, we should do better. And that declined rapidly for white millennials and for white folks, generally speaking, white conservatives, especially. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that, and what kind of irritates me, makes me feel pessimistic, is that, you know, we have to wait for these egregious moments to show up on social media before people take note and even want to do something. And so then we have the problem of what about in places where you can't see violence, like in schools? or, you know, in segregated neighborhoods or in people's bank accounts or in wage theft or so on and so forth. And so, you know, I think even just kind of depending on a video to change people's attitudes is already saying a lot about where we are. And then the solutions that specifically like white millennials engaged in when they're like, okay, we're going to fight back against these horrible things. I will place a black box on my Instagram. Yeah. And this yeah. will move us forward. It's it's it goes in line with the superficiality of the understanding of what yes. racism consists yes, of. Exactly. Which goes to that first countervailing force. Right. Is that like you don't want to be racist, but if we don't understand racism as structural, then the solutions that we present um, are going to be narrow and superficial. And that's what we see is that when we ask millennials at at that time, when we were first writing the book, um, there's a lot of talk about stop and frisk. And so, you know, it's like, what do you think about stop and frisk? And people were like, well, I mean, if you're from a demographic that tends to, you know, do crime, 
then maybe you should be stopping frisk. Or like, what do you have to hide? You know, like all of these kind of tropes. Like, you know, if it's for their safety at TSA, I don't mind that they all check us, even though, you know, it's really Muslims that need to be checked. But I'm okay with going through this process if that means that we're all going to be safer, right? And so, you know, there's a very, like, I think that it's really important for us to keep our, you know, finger on the pulse of how people are thinking about questions of race, because that helps us to understand what people are likely to do uh, and support in their preferences and their policy preferences. And, you know, I think what we're seeing is that people are aware that there are egregious racial inequalities, but a lot of the times our preferences become very superficial. Mm-hmm. And since um, you have researched this, I kind of want to ask you a little bit if you could give advice um, to researchers who are planning to conduct research on racial attitudes based on your experience, like doing this yourself. So I think that one of the things that we need to do is have a kind of wider array of questions that we ask people. There are scholars that are doing really good work to just really highlight how multidimensional racial attitudes are. We tend to think about and tend to measure racial attitudes in terms of, say, stereotypes or in terms of racial resentment. But there are other ways that people orient themselves toward racial matters. There's empathy. There's apathy. There's knowledge, right? To what degree are you knowledgeable about structural inequality? To what degree are you willing to admit that structural racism is a way to understand inequality in the United States? So I guess I am making a pitch, and racial stasis in part is a pitch, to actually start a conversation about bringing in new, fresh questions that map on to the way that people are talking about race right now. And that includes, like, for example, white grievance, right? That, you know, another thing that we found is that they're like, yeah, like, I think that Black people and Latinx people are discriminated against, but white people are just as discriminated against. I mean, that's the thing that we should know and that we should have a better sense of the extent to which people feel aggrieved and feel that, you know, changes that may produce more equitable outcomes feels like oppression to some people. I think that is a thing that is worthy of measure. How do millennials who are not white, like people of color and Black folks, how how are their racial attitudes moving forward? Do you think that they're going to be the ones to provide more steps forwards than backwards than their white counterparts? So this is complicated. And to be honest, we focus on white millennials because of their status in the racial hierarchy. My sense, and I think this is, you know, there are two books that people ask Chris and I to write, and one is about Gen Z and one is about Black millennials, Black and Latinx and Asian American millennials and Gen Zers. But my sense is that one of the things that we see, and I and I always kind of caution people, is that when we look at those trends that lump millennials together and we see progress, if we disaggregate it by race, we're not going to see the same trend. We're going to see that given the fact that millennials are one of the most diverse generations, that the people of color and that group are going to be pulling their group in a more progressive direction. Great. Well, um, I want to keep on keeping on with like talking about white millennials here. So um, what are some ways that we can help white millennials see and take ownership of their harmful racial attitudes and move forward 
Oh, Lisa. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot, huh? <laughs> I figured this out. Uh, like, this question. We could talk about this for 14 hours at least, probably. <laughs> so, you know what I will say, Lisa, is that mm-hmm. one of the things that stood out to me about the interviews that we did is that people did admit, like, I might just not know. And they mm-hmm. didn't. And, you know, on the one hand, that suggests that if we taught people more, which is the opposite of what's happening at, you know, in local school boards and this kind of like anti-CRT rage, you know, is very much undoing knowledge or preventing people from gaining the right kind of knowledge. I do think that that could shape the way people think about matters. And, and that matters a lot. And that's actually one of the reasons why I wrote Stay Woke. So I wrote a different book that's kind of like mm-hmm. a guide after writing Racial Stasis, right? That people said, like, I wish I knew more or I wish I had a better understanding. And so I said, okay, well, if you wanted to know more, if you wanted to have a better understanding, what would those things be? It would be worthy of study to know if people did learn more. I don't know. And I'm not really sure... There's a great deal of information out there about racial learning. I think that's an area that we need to to do more and do better with. So let's talk a little bit about Stay Woke, A People's Guide to Making All Black Lives Matter. And I guess it's a good guide for millennials who are trying to become more self-aware, that they're part of the problem and want to participate in some solutions. Can you share a few lessons or takeaways that you think um, the generation could benefit from? Yeah, I guess I would say, well, one, I would say that Stay Woke was definitely inspired by our white millennials, but is for everyone. And, you know, I think about even kind of like my woker than thou students who, you know, they are in the mindset that if you don't know the right language, then you are not in the club. And I think that is dangerous in and of itself. It's a different kind of dangerous. You know what I mean? But, you know, I think that one of the things that I saw and noticed, and I noticed at the end of my classes or toward the end of my classes, is that people feel overwhelmed. That once you kind of understand that in almost every domain in American life, there are racial inequalities, it feels like you can't do anything. And my sense, and I hope that the thing that people take away from Stay Woke is that we can all use our skills, resources, and talents to do what we can do within our sphere of influence. You know, so, you know, there are some people who are artists, you know, use your art to do that work. Some people are business people. Some people are doctors. Ensuring that among your patients that the racial gap in care is closed would be doing a lot of work, for example. So I think the main takeaway, I hope, is that people can see that where they are, where they work, where they live, there are inequalities and that they have skills, know-how, and resources to do a little something to mitigate and maybe even you know, work to dismantle those inequalities. That's fantastic. And before we close this out, I know that you have a podcast. So could you share a little bit about it and where folks can access it? Oh, yeah. So I was invited to be a co-host alongside Michael Berkman and Chris Beam on the Democracy Works podcast, which is housed at Penn State in the McCourtney Institute for Democracy. And every week we interview someone really smart um, about, you know, some 
aspect that we need to kind of be thinking critically about to understand the workings, the mechanisms, and the failings of democracy, mostly in the U.S., but sometimes in other countries. So, for example, this week we're interviewing Josh Mitchell about student debt and what does it mean for citizens to both need the education to be informed citizens, but for that, like, what does it cost them? to get those things, for example. Oh, wow. Well, that's actually our next topic for No Jargon. So can you let us know? <laughs> we to talk about debt. We yes. <laughs> yes. It's a very timely and important issue. So thank you so much for talking with us today, for sharing so much of your information, advice, expertise. And I'm looking forward to hearing your podcast. It is my pleasure to be here with you, Lisa. Thank you. And thanks for listening. For more on Professor Smith's work, check out our show notes at scholars.org slash no jargon. No Jargon is the podcast of the Scholar Strategy Network, a nationwide organization that connects journalists, policymakers, and civic leaders with America's top researchers to improve policy and strengthen democracy. The producer of our show is Madonna Mosen Zadagon. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You can give us feedback on Twitter at no no Jargon Podcast or at our email address, nojargon at scholars.org. <laughs>